I'll always say thank you to the Dragon Ritual Drummers for providing music on our show. Thank you, Utu. Yes, thank you, Utu. All right. Let's get this party started, shall we? Okay, so here we are. I want to say good evening and welcome to everyone for tuning in to episode 10 and it being the last Friday of June 2020. The sooner, the, the sooner this year is over, the better, okay? But anyway, I want to begin by introducing our other co-host, Beth Pert Weeks, who's also a valued member of our EFA community. So I want to say welcome, Beth. Welcome, Beth. Glad to be there. <laughs> right. And of course, good evening to my other co-host, Sean Jerome, who I always forget. About everybody. Welcome. Welcome to episode 10. <laughs> and I oh oh Beth, don't send me messages now. You're you're hiding everything. <laughs> okay, the, the surname is not Kurt, it's Kirk. Beard, okay. Beard, our, our valued co-host, Beth Beard. <laughs> okay. Anyway, let's get back to the show here. So, I want. I'd like to begin by saying Beth and I are excited to interview two of our Facebook friends, and because okay. we get to interviews our Facebook friends, we get a chance to get to know them a little bit better. And we get to hear about their extraordinary lives, their personal spiritual journeys, okay, and the paths that they have crossed other lands and their teachings that they've received from other lands, all right, as well as other cultures. And they have their own brand of medicine, but also their own schools of thought that brought them their unique divinatory and healing modalities from other cultures, as I've said. So which by using their intuition, they're able to assist their clients' needs and draw from their unique toolbox, such as tea leaves, their amazing intuition, divinatory boards. Whether they do this as individuals or as joint partners, I want to begin by delving into each of their own history and their personal journey. So I want to say welcome to Kate Zhao and Baba Ted Zhao. Welcome you. to our show. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Okay. Can we can we hear you still? Yes. Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's just my ears. Okay. So I will start with Kate and then I will go to Baba Ted. Okay. So before I get to uh, dive right into the, the um, interview parts individually, starting with Kate, I want to mention that they are also authors of several books. Okay. Um, I think Baba Ted is an author of several books. And based on your collaborative efforts, you both have written the book, and I want to see, I wrote the title here, Absinthe, Alewives, and Alchemy. Okay. I love the title. I think it's great. Now, this story 
is an actual, based on an actual recipe for absinthe, which was the family secret of Kate Jow. And it was stolen from her ancestors and they stole it by accusing them of witchcraft. So I'm going to uh, start with my question, if I may safely say, Kate. So are you a hereditary witch then, my dear? <laughs> Yes, I, I am. Um, certainly, magical happenings have been running in my family for, for quite a while, whether they admit it or not. <laughs> so, more than others. Um, but we wrote, you know, it, it was interesting because, like you said, Ted has authored a lot of books. I've, I've done some, like I did a, a book on TV reading, for instance. Um, yes. This is yes. the first thing that we wrote together. And that, that was an amazing thing. It worked out very well, surprisingly well, you know. <laughs> no, no competition, no fights in between? <laughs> no, no. Um, but there were raw moments because this really yeah. reflected, it was very true to my life and a lot yeah. of the things that happened in my life. So reliving a lot of that and then deciding what to edit out <laughs> Because, you know, I try to condense it. Yeah, into, yeah. And, and Some things are best left secret. Those things that are relevant, yes. But it, it's a reflection of the things that I overcame, the things that I learned, the um, my ancestral stories that I carry with me that became uh, more more evident as I, as I allowed them to happen and allowed my intuition to flow and learn so much more. I mean, so it is about absinthe, of course, you know, that was kind of the trigger for what set off a lot of the things in my life. And um, the alchemy, not only historic alchemy and the alchemists at the time and how a lot of the traditional medicines that women carried and how they helped their, their clans, their societies, their villages, right, that right. were then co-opted to more traditional medicine and became a male-only tradition. Mm -hmm. And the women mm -hmm. were relegated to something else. So uh, there were very, there were so many parallels to ancestral stories and to my current life. And mm -hmm. it brought a lot, it brought a lot forward to me. It brought a lot of healing for one and uh, a lot of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was, an important journey that I think mm -hmm. I was ready to take. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. there's things kind of float around in your life for a long time, but you just have to get mm -hmm. to that point. Okay, you ready? So, so it, it it came to the surface, and and with that, um, this really sort of started your journey, your spiritual journey. Would you say, in the sense of how did you incorporate the absinthe into, let's say, your rituals? Um, I know you've done workshops, so tell us a little bit about your workshops and how the absence kind of works into that. Yeah, I, I can't say that the book started my spiritual journey because I I've been doing it was before. Yeah. Since I was I feel like since I could have any kind of comprehension as to what that was as a child, you know, just started Absolutely. many, many times where I tried to to push it aside or to hide it or to fake it or to blend in or to be normal. 
But I do think that that writing the book was sort of my coming out in the sense that yeah, I didn't even want to try to pretend to be normal anymore. So that it sort of helped in, in that regard. Um, the absinthe in our ceremonies, absinthe because it is originally magical and medicinal. It, it wasn't yes. a drink to use to get drunk. It, it's a prescription. And the right. recipe was changed according to what that person's, that patient's needs were. You know, you would adjust the herbs and the amounts and according to those things. But, um, but I've used it in divination. I use the herbs to read like I would read tea leaves. And oh, wow. use it to, to tell stories. Um, we believe that that there are so many stories and hidden histories that when people know these things, it can help change their perspective on a lot of mm -hmm. things. And that's one thing Ted and I both try to do with our art, with our divination and with our spirituality is to create, create art, tell stories, do things that can bring awareness to people and hopefully affect mm -hmm. how change in the world. So with, so I'm going to ask, like with tea leaves, you know how everybody gets to drink their own tea from the the, the tea cup. Mm -hmm. Do people get to uh, sample your absinthe too and then read directly from that? Is that how it works? Well, I generally will make an absinthe tea. So instead of using alcohol, I'll use it as an infusion and make a tea out of it and then read the mm -hmm. herbs. But mm -hmm. of course, anybody can sample my absinthe. I'm happy nice. to <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so th and this is a recipe that was actually handed down in your family. Is that correct? Yeah, but like I said, recipes were like prescriptions. Right. So they, they like change. The basic ingredients uh, yeah. amounts vary according to a patient's need. So right. I have the ingredients, but it was tweaked according to what was needed. Beth, you tweak you, them? Beth, do you, you have a question? Well, uh, Teresa just asked it actually. I was wondering oh, okay. about the ancestral uh, connection with the recipe, if you did use, you know, the recipe that- Yeah, you, do you, so do you use, use yeah. and do you, sorry, I, it's, for some reason I can't hear that well. Maybe I'm covering my own speaker, sorry. Um, so do you use your own intuition? Like let's say if somebody was coming to you for a reading, would they then say, um, you know, I, I, I need a reading and, and do you do like a premonitional type of thing of what you think they might need? And so you kind of tweak that uh, recipe of the absinthe accordingly. Is that how you would do it? No, um, if I decide to use the herbs, I'll just use my basic herbs that I have. Um, that okay. was, the herbs generally use more for physical, for like a physical illness. Um, when I'm doing readings, I might, the, the thing that I tweak is maybe the tool I used to read. I mean, generally when I know I'm gonna read for somebody, it starts pretty much right after we agree to meet. And a lot of times prior to that, have visits from their ancestors. I'll have a lot of information coming to me before I even talk to them. I start to get all people start to get really chatty and and start yeah. to pump in that information. And then yeah. I kind of know if I'm just going to sit down with that person, or if I need to use cards, or if I need to use tea leaves or absinthe or my board, whatever it is. Like I, I get a feel for it then. So that's the part yeah. that I get to treat. 
so it's kind of premonitional in that sense. You get a feel for for the person in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. Before the before they come for a reading. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> Beth. Did you did you want did you did I ask ask the questions you wanted to ask? Yeah, pre pretty much. My my at least what popped into my mind was you know was the recipe, but the basic recipe that you used was that uh, something that had come to you through your family and i wanted to ask you about your mom too and do, you know did she do this sort of thing and mm. my mom um she's probably one of them that won't admit too much that, that she's <laughs> but she she would read handwriting um she did she did a lot of herbal things she did mm -hmm. hands-on healing but you know was never anything you know she's not yeah. with my right. grandmother my grandmother read poems um she also did handwriting she did some tea leaves i mean it was just everybody did something my aunt used cards and Ouija boards and so it's just what yeah. and it did <laughs> but one did not anything you know? can i can i add something um we're using the word recipe. And one of the words, mm -hmm. things that we found out is, is that, so I'm a Dutch speaker um, and Kate's family is from Switzerland. And so where, where it comes from, um, the word recept has been translated by people talking about uh, absence as recipe. But really recept is like Rx, it means prescription. Mm -hmm. So- okay. French as well? What they stole was the ability to prescribe, and what they stole was the basic set of things used for those prescriptions. Yeah. And so there's a basic absinthe, which has the absinthe herb, but all of the other ones that were all standardized by Louis Pernot, who was one of the, the recipients of the stealing, uh, and the first person to actually steal it from these guys um, and take it to France, they were stealing a prescription. And so we tend to think that doctors and apothecaries and all of those things have existed since time began, but that's really only in the last, since the 1800s, middle of the 1800s. So back then, so we're talking about the 1700s, recipe in Swiss, uh, German, in Prussian, um, was was a prescription. They actually stole her ability to prescribe. Um, and okay. wormwood, the main thing that was right. in of almost everything, what we call the digestive, um, that part became standardized because of a list that they stole and they just threw everything in. And so a lot mm -hmm. of what we think of as absinthe is a liquor today. Yeah. Yes, the, yes. The, and it, it ended up being a liqueur as I did a little bit of uh, research on that. Um, so it went from something that was medicinal to something yeah. that they created and um, obviously are making money on that. Now, yeah. Beth had a chance to taste the absinthe. <laughs> well, so, Beth, how did you like it? Like, I, how, what did it taste like to I you? I have to tell you, I didn't taste the absinthe. I tasted the wormwood extract that Kate would mix with sugar to make the absinthe. 
Um, so right. I had the undiluted by unsweetened version. And it was, I was warned that it would be quite bitter. So it was actually less bitter than I expected. It was not nearly as foul as I expected. It was very warming. Um, and it, it tasted to me, but I like better. It tasted good. Um, yeah. And, but what really surprised me was the reaction. And I didn't have very much. Like I had you know, maybe uh, at the most a half an ounce, you know, like a half, at the very most. Um, but I swallowed this and I just got this overwhelming warm rush uh, that went boom all through my body. And then I pretty much sweated for an hour. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say, and then I passed out. <laughs> no, I didn't feel like anything like that. And I didn't feel any change in my head, but it was a real physical reaction that I had to it, And it wasn't an unpleasant one, um, but it did make me perspire quite heavily for about an hour. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that's just teaching, you know, that's the, Get rid of whatever it is I need to get rid of in this moment. And I really, I, I thought it was a really neat thing, and I would, I would love to here at home a little bit with you know, making something up because it was such an interesting thing and uh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now I was going to say, um, Jean Jerome, are you getting any feedback? I'm getting some sort of feedback. I'm, I'm hearing some some sort of background noise. I was actually trying to isolate where it's coming from. Yeah, because I'm but, just uh, hearing that. I thought it was my speaker, but I'm I'm kind of no. getting some feedback. It's that very light. It's very light. On? Yeah, it like a radio good. or anything? No. The screen. Yeah. Hold on a second. Here. Let me try. I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn off the AC. I've been speaking of perspiring. <laughs> okay. See if that makes. I don't think I don't know if that was that, but anyway, but wasn't absinthe also used for hallucinatory purposes? I mean, you know, to get a trip to, to, you know, go somewhere spiritually? <laughs> no, no, that, that would be shrooms. No. <laughs> um, you, it probably would be pretty trippy just because of the high alcohol content. Right, I, right. There right. were there were issues back, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, with people getting poisoned. But it wasn't actually the absinthe; it was the process that they were using to create the absinthe. And there was metal that was leaching into the um, the drink, the liquor itself. And so, okay. if it was made, that could have caused some issues, but not the okay. actual herbs or the alcohol okay now i wanted to ask you about your actual divinatory boards because i've seen a picture of them i think they're quite beautiful so tell me a little bit about that because you're you actually are coming up with your own like um well your own divination system right so could you give me a little bit of uh, background on that um the ice it's a, called an isis oracle and speaking stones and I work a lot with dreams, dream interpretation and, and dreaming and that kind of thing. And um, when I sort of dreamt this up, I, I oh, first of all, I always loved Isis. I kind of talk about that in the book and her yeah. history 
going to get into a little bit more in the lineage and how she's evolved through cultures and through time. But uh, so Isis was important to me. And using the hieroglyphs in conjunction with her story and her mythology and that archetype and the right. geography, the actual physical geography of Egypt was all combined to, to use. And I use the hieroglyphs because it, to me, they were like dream symbols. They were not immediately recognizable. So it symbols. helped to not uh, lay over my own personal ego or whatever on top of them. You know, it was just like a parallel. I like to work in parallel so that I, mm -hmm. I can try to keep things mm -hmm. cleaner. And the hieroglyphs helped me with that. And then it made sense to use ISIS according like with everything else that was going on in my life. So I used, um, I created the board and it, what you do is you cast the stones on the board. Each stone has a hieroglyph and you read according to where it lands and what the energy of that stone is. And so I'm able to cover the chakra system and the nice. energy. So, so you get physical, mental, emotional health. And right. sort of hidden in the board if you are certain of certain traditions that you can use it and tweak it to your own uh, spirituality as well. Nice, nice. Now you also, you're a beautiful illustrator. Your artwork is amazing. I've seen some of the samples of that. So um, there's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there's an actual mural that is of um, Mama Moses, if I'm not mistaken. Can you kind of tell me where, where you have it, where it is, this beautiful art piece? Because I've seen only your illustrations for children's books and that, and they're amazing. They really are. They're really good. Well, several years ago, this is one of the things that Ted and I, did together again to raise awareness for certain um, social justice issues and right. this in particular we we focused a lot on slavery and modern day slavery in in all the various forms and so we created an installation that had um, representations of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and also Yemaya with Tichuba. Um, those were, were large pieces that I did to look like stained glass pieces on, on boards. And they, once the installation was over, they moved on to their new home. So Mama Moses and Sojourner went to Canada. They went up to St. Catherine's and they nice. are in Harriet Tubman's church in St. Nice. Catherine's there at the DNA church. And then, um, the Botanica in, is it in Buffalo? In Buffalo, El Indio. Yeah, El Indio in Buffalo. Uh, they just, they took um, Yimaya and Tichuba and they live over there now. So. Nice, can, nice. Can you, for some of our, our viewers who don't know uh, the story of Yimaya and Tichuba, can you expand on that a little bit and why they would have been part of that? part of that installation? Yeah, I, I can yeah. do that. Um, so in the middle of this large um, installation that was uh, dedicated to what we call the Blue Bead Project, she's wearing blue beads today, um, it is about slavery. And the Yamaya um, was said to have been the Orisha of Chichuba, who is the famous uh, first witch 
accused in the Salem witch trials. She's also the first person of color uh, to be um, talked about or told about in any real detail uh, from the 1600s. And so, um, so the transcripts of the, of the trial uh, talk a lot about her during the trial. Um, oddly enough, of the 19 people accused, um, she was acquitted and um, she was also, um, she was also uh, imprisoned at the time. And um, the person who owned her, um, the minister in town, um, refused to let her go. And so it is said that um, somebody bought her and that they released her. And there are many, many, many myths about her. Um, but the most prevalent one, if you go to Salem, um, Salem in uh, Massachusetts, is that she walked into the ocean. Now, many per people believe that she committed suicide. Many people believe that metaphorically she went back to Barbados and she was uh, a Barbadian. Um, oh. That Chichuba uh, was a, uh, Chichuba is a Yoruba word um, and it means atonement. And so many people believe she went back to Barbados. And so a lot of people don't know that her daughter was being held captive in Barbados by, um, by her owner. And so people always wonder what, um, what her relationship was to, to her owner. But um, essentially the last image and the main image in her project is her being held in the same pose that the famous Pieta statue is. So when you see Mother Mary holding yes. Jesus, um, we instead have Yamaya holding Chichuba. And nice. so, um, and so um, either way, whether she died or whether she went back to Barbados, um, Yamaya saved her. And so there's a whole archetypal story behind that. There's an old like that. That, that, that relates to, to um, not just Chichuba, but the mother of slaves. And so her daughter was a slave, she's a slave, and then her mother was actually given uh, as a slave. Uh, and because uh, her master was British, we are pretty sure that she was the Yoruba slave because that was the most common slave uh, at the time. That and her name and the fact that, um, that she was allowed to keep her name uh, is, are, are all clues to who she was. But not a lot is known about her and even less is known about uh, what happened to her after she disappeared out of, out of prison. Wow. How, how does the blue bead tie into the, the project and the story? What, what is that all about? Do you wanna? In, in the story of Tichuba? Or the blue bead project? The blue bead project. The, the blue bead project that we did, that's, that was our, uh, where we started the idea of using mm -hmm. art in particular to reach people and to create awareness. It seems that people can read all sorts of facts and figures and logic. Um, it doesn't always sink in to change a heart. So yeah. you, you know, we, we find that working through art and storytelling and more creative endeavors can reach people in a different place where it's less they don't maybe feel as defensive or or can be upset by something and are, are more able to accept some new mm -hmm. information. 
and hopefully be able to change some minds. So it's really, you know, the the project is about creating awareness for those things. And we chose the blue bee because that was used as currency to buy and sell slaves. They would use blue glass beads. And wow. Um, so that was the symbol that we chose to, to represent that when we were coming up with that project. Now, now, I wanted to ask you about your type of reading that you do with the, besides with the divinatory bo board, which I think is fascinating. I love it. Um, your own intuition when you do your readings, when someone comes to you, do you do an individual um, uh, reading as, as let's say, uh, in a mediumship type of way, you, you tune in with your spirits or spiritual guides? How, do, how does that work for you? I do. Um, prior to a reading, I always make sure um, I'm physically clean. I always wash my hands, make sure I'm physically clean. <laughs> That's like important to me and that my space is set. Yes. I, I prep by just them cleaning psychically and energetically and asking to get the best information that I can for whatever it is that they need to hear or that needs to, to go out to them and and set mm -hmm. my brain, I, you know, try to get into um, a little bit mm -hmm. more of a altered state. Um, everything, you know, sometimes as far as like a mediumship goes, Sometimes people want specifically that. Sometimes it's it's a, a fairly traditional reading, I guess, but they'll pop in. Um, it it depends. Uh, you know, it's not it's not a science. And as far as any spirits yes. Yes. And talking, it usually there's somebody, but it might not be who they want. They might right. have a message. Right. Absolutely. Um, it's you know it's it's hard. I'm. I've seen a lot of really strange things and people, spirits that don't want to talk to me for one reason or another, even though they're there and they obviously have something to say. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard sometimes, like I'll have, have sometimes get images, which is, you know, like on TV shows where they put little dots over people's faces so they don't protect the innocent, so to speak. I've had people come through that will put like this brave fuzz over an image or a story because I'm not supposed to know all the details. It's a secret between that person yes. and that person. So then I yes. have to try to talk around it and describe yes. it so they understand yes. they're not. Yes. Because it's like yes. also and weird things will happen and I just stay open to it. That's, that's how your spirit turns around and talks with you, you know, and it'll tell you these things and only you, you know, communicate that way. Do you create a sacred space too before you do your reading? Like do you cast a circle, you know, that type of thing, light incense, invite um, specific uh, deities, let's say? Um, I don't normally cast a formal circle or anything like that. I do set the space. I clean the space and I make sure that I'm not getting static, so to speak, or troublemakers or something that, that comes in. So I don't necessarily do a formal circle, but I, I've done these things for so long. Even when I do circles, it's, it's just sort of there, you mm -hmm. know? envision yeah. it it just like yeah. you yeah. just turn yeah. a button and it's there again 
Um, as far as DDs, I don't, the people that I work with, I don't know if you'd consider them deities. So okay, okay. Right. With great respect, anyway. Um, so they they don't normally, they're just sort of there and they guide. They don't necessarily come in on a, on a reading or anything because it's really more about that person, that person's guides, right. that person's ancestors, that person's right. About them. Right. So I try to set the space and keep it open. Right, right. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. And and at those times too, that's when you sort of decide I'm going to do, let's say, cards too. Do you prefer tarot cards or oracle cards? Doesn't matter because I don't read tarot cards traditionally anyway. So yeah, yeah. I, I'll flip them over and Sometimes the cards are relevant. It's just a trigger, and something else comes to my mind, and so I go with that. So okay. I, it, it doesn't matter. It, whatever it is, oracle okay. cards, tarot cards. It, it's really more I, of a trigger for me. I don't really. Yeah. yeah. I prefer. I prefer oracle card, oracle cards myself. We've lost Beth for some reason. I yeah, think no maybe she had to, to step us uh, away for a moment. She'll be back. She'll be okay. back. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, no problem. All okay. right. Okay, because I was just going to ask Beth if she had anything else to say on that um, with regards to um, to any divination or anything like that, but we'll wait for her. So in the meantime, um, was there a question there, Jean-Jerome? Did I miss something? So I'm, it's a very interesting, not always do you find a couple that are in the, you know, find that sort of um, synergy in terms of working together in the spiritual arts and uh so uh baba ted can you tell us a little bit about the back how did you get into into the spirituality and, and take us a little bit through your journey in terms of the spirituality yes. and the lands that you've i, I like to use the, the expression that they used to use in cuba the lands the various lands that one has traveled during spirituality so um so the beginning of my road is um, as an atheist um, and as um, someone who was written, uh, raised uh, both Dutch Reformed and um, Pentecostal. So my grandmother was Pentecostal. So my first um, real experiences of, of, of any kind of what I think of as spirituality uh, is through my grandmother. And, and so she was... Um, she was in the Pentecostal church that she went to as well as all of the Pentecostal churches for like 50 miles around. Um, the person that people went to for hands-on healing, um, she spoke in tongues. Um, she did not speak good English, but when she was speaking in tongues, she spoke perfect British English uh, and she would translate. Um, and so my first experience of healing and channeling and music and um, uh, and uh, an Afro-centered faith uh, was through my grandmother, who is uh, ethnically Chinese, and um, and she was a, a and she was a, a bought and sold born slave. Uh, her father sold her to her husband, who was forty years older than her, um, and um, and he did not marry her. At 13, like he was supposed to, because in his um, 
in his view, she was possessed. And so they uh, did exorcisms on her, uh, Confucian exorcisms and uh, reformed exorcisms, and then finally Catholic exorcisms um, until she was, um, until she was in, um, oh, probably like 19 or 20. And, oh, wow. and, and so he, he finally married her um, basically because um, her father was just going to kill her. Uh, oh for my God. And so um, the, uh, the relationship that I have to spirituality in my family is, is that we, are, uh, we have devout um, fundamentalists uh, in most of my family, except for my grandmother, who was, uh, who was ostensibly uh, uh, a fundamentalist, but she was the most naturally spiritual person that I know. And so um, early on in my college years, um, I, was, uh, I was oddly converted to spirituality by Carl Sagan. So anybody know who knows Carl Sagan knows oh, that, yes. that he is uh, 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 he's he wouldn't say he is an atheist he would say he's a skeptic and a scientist and agnostic about that. but I spent a week with him and his view of the world and his view of the universe and his view of how things happen was so beautiful and so um, logical to me that me who was a scientist. Uh, um, actually uh, fell in love with the idea of, of a um, not an intelligent universe or an intelligent um, like a, a, a deity but uh, but the idea of mystery um, became really really important to me and so I um, I, I uh, held on to that as a sort of a search but didn't really find anything until uh, I was a union president and an AFL-CIO delegate. Um, and so I was used to traveling around uh, converting people to unionism. And, um, and so I was asked to come and speak to a group of, uh, of men um, about 50 miles south of where I live here in Grand Rapids. And when I went there with my friend who was uh, an iron worker union activist, um, I found that uh, he had tricked me to coming down to a sweat lodge, and it was there that I, um, I met. That's quite the stretch. <laughs> That's quite the trick. <laughs> oh, by the way, we're going to a sweat lodge. <laughs> I was converting them. They were going to convert me. Um, that, and, that's called putting you on the hot seat, literally. It was totally that. But it turned out that uh, grandfather, uh, La Violetta, uh, who was an Anishinaabe clown, he was, uh, he was a, an elder, uh, a sacred clown, um, he had actually heard of me. And um, he had grown up an atheist and an alcoholic. And uh, in, the, in the service in Korea, um, he was stationed in Japan and went down to Australia for uh, for his um, what do they call it I, for his his break um, for his his liberty, 
and uh, he was kidnapped um, by Boogie's pirates. So if you know the word boogeyman, those are Indonesians from the Boogie's people. And the Boogie's people are my people. Um, and so we are the, the traditional boogeyman. And, um, and he was kidnapped um, by them and rescued by the Moluccans, um, who are also my people. And so the Moluccans are headhunters. Um, but they actually nursed him back to health. Um, they uh, they gave him his first pipe. They taught him the story of the Star Maiden and um, and taught him more about his. We lost the mic. We lost the mic, Ted. There's feedback, so oh. I was thinking that might be it. All right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is the feedback. Uh, is that it? It might be <coughs> that in itself. That's okay. oh. Hold it closer to you. All right. Yeah. Let me hold it over here. Is this better? Much better. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, so anyway, so the, the, the bottom line is, is that uh, he was the first one to teach me about my own ancestors. And he did that as a payback, as well as telling me the story of how tobacco came from Indonesia and got to the Americas and, uh, and also the story of the sacred pipe. Um, and so from that point on, um, I began to meet many, many uh, Native American and Central American uh, uh, elders, teachers, uh, wise people, whatever you wanna call them uh, and became apprenticed. Uh, and so for many years, uh, my path was uh, was learning and understanding divination through a, a more Central American and Native American, North American uh, paths. Um, Would you say more shamanic in a sense? I, I think shamanic yeah. experience. If the word, yeah, using the word shamanic in its in its um, true form, um, I'm uh, I'm a, a a student of Michael Harner's. Uh, school of shamanism, right. and and right. so, uh, so my my view of the word is more anthropological than it is uh, popular. Um, okay. So so, in a real simple form, I was studying people who intercede for their own people, uh, and mm -hmm. become channels or voices or intuitives, uh, and so uh, so my own path, uh, sometimes not willingly, um, was to find and be found by all of these different uh, elders. Mm -hmm. um, Where was, was that? Sorry, I'm just uh, going to interject. Where was that? Was that when you were um, I, I, in? Um, yeah, in Grand Rapids. I'm living in Grand Rapids in right. uh, in my 20s. And okay. so, yeah. And so, um, so it wasn't long after that, that, um, that I became apprenticed to uh, uh, a woman who was a uh, uh, who was uh, part German, but also mostly uh, a Suan. A uh, she had a Suan background, so she came from a very uh, many different uh, Lakota, Dakota, Nez Perce, and uh, um, but she was also a Zazen archer, and so she had spent eight years with the Zazen. And so her approach to teaching Native American um, medicine wheels was a very, very eclectic Zen approach. 
um, okay. to the idea of, of archetypes. And through her, I met many other teachers until um, I became the apprentice of a Jungian uh, whose name is Dr. Mary Loomis, who is famous for... Uh, for I, I was uh, just going to... Sorry, um, sorry for interjecting. What is a, you said the word Zazen. What is that? Is that a specific yes. type so, of spiritual um, belief or, yeah, or a yeah, tribe yeah. of people? It's sort of, yeah. It, it, um, one story uh, unleashes another. Um, yes. She was actually uh, uh, an Olympic archer and uh, uh, a Native American who was uh, literally off the reservation and uh, was going to Berkeley and she was a, an Olympic archer. And um, in 1976, um, we, were, um, we, were, we took ourselves out of the Olympics and she had already been made the team and that destroyed her. And so um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of witches, a couple of reclaiming witches had dreams about her and they found her on the streets of Berkeley and realized that they couldn't save her. And so they did divination and they sent her to Japan. So they got their money together and they sent her to Japan. And uh, she ended up recovering from heroin and from cocaine addiction um, and alcohol addiction in a Zen monastery. And oh, they saved her by uh, using her own archery to make her a nun. And so she became a Zazen nun. That's a, a sect of, of Zen. And so they're the ones that um, shoot through blindfolds and shoot through screens. And so she was uh, a, oh, a fairly wow. amazing spiritual person, but then she had returned to her own roots and was learning Native American um, from a set of five Native American elders that were um, um, that were also uh, who I was later introduced to. So, um, so my own teacher um, from that group of teachers uh, was a woman named Dr. Mary uh, Loomis, who was a Jungian psychoanalyst. And so my oh. view of who I am and what I do is very heavily influenced by Jungian, by the Jungian yeah. philosophy. Yes. yes. I, so I have this sort of universalist idea about um, what this belief is or that belief is. I look for commonalities. I look for patterns. I look for geometric shapes. Um, yeah. So mandalas are important to me. So my, um, my own divination that I do that is Mayan, um, if I were to lay it out for you, all of the 22 cards, you would see a medicine wheel, but you would also wow. see the seven chakra systems. Uh, and, and this and is the, your own devised divinatory no, system. This is a uh, this is a, a very ancient system called Shulton Tarot, um, oh, and so okay. it is the Kabbalistic Tarot overlaid on the Mayan um, system. And okay. so, and so, uh, from a Jungian perspective, um, I I see see it as a very universal way of working. Um, so, like uh, Baba Jean Jerome. Would would he hear what I say, and and he would hear when I tell him that we have sixteen directions that each have sixteen directions with two hundred and fifty six archetypal stories hidden within this with this card, um, and that there are eight basic mm -hmm. directions, and there is a duality, and that everything that the Mayan believe, you will find in Ifa. 
And mm -hmm. so it easily transfers over. And so when I started teaching African traditionals, the, the, the basics and the understandings of what's underneath divination, um, all of those things, whether you are doing Obiobata or, or, or De Lagoon or Marindan Lagoon or, or you're doing um, whatever those things that you're doing, if it is a binary system that works in eight directions, there's a commonality to it, whether you are in Kabbalah or Mayan or Ifa. Um, and so my view of, of everything is very much colored by my teachers. Um, and then my current, um, what I self-identify as now, um, because ancestrally it works with me, is that I, I, I identify with Ifa or Odu Ifa. Um, and, uh, and I'm a Babalao in that tradition and an Aluo in the Oduya Ifa tradition um, in the sense that I teach. Um, and I also, um, because of ancestrally who I am and how I work and the fact that like Kate and I tell stories um, mm -hmm. and that my primary first um, uh, ATR teacher, my first Ifa teacher is Babatunde Olatunji. Uh, I am, uh, I am ordained as a conchante of Guinea Yoruba Vodou. So I have a, a Haitian Vodou um, sort of way of working that is very similar to what Utu does. I do elevacion, I do uh, healing the way uh, he does, I do medicine singing, I tell stories. Um, and so that particular thing that came out of Africa uh, is very strongly believed in and held and still practiced there and in Ghana, where my other teacher, uh, Baba Teddy uh, Ogumilde, uh, they are both storyteller teachers. Do you have your own Ile or do you have your own students? Have you initiated other Baba Laos or anything like that? I, I do, um, but I, I, my Ita, my, my path is to have no house. Uh, and so um, Kate uh, has the Egbe and uh and so this is like her house uh in many ways um and uh um i am much more called to um to um and it has been my path over the last several years to facilitate um um arguments to uh help women who are being abused by their uh teachers by their priests by their diviners uh and uh and so I, I serve a much different, uh, I'm sort of a rogue priest uh, in that sense. But um, in many, many ways, um, I am much more telling stories as well as privately. My divination is very often to help uh, spiritual leaders. And so I don't hang out a shingle. I don't advertise. Um, I pretty much only do readers and leaders and um Lots of uh, Iyas and Babas uh, uh, within the African traditions, uh, as well as I used to have a lot of Christian ministers, lots of black bishops, lots of, um, uh, lots of devout fundamentalists secretly come to me. Uh, and uh, as you say, when it's midnight, it's dark outside. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, Kate used to own a store, and and so very often they would like send somebody in, you know, and so uh, and so uh, they would they would come and talk to me, 
And so, so a lot of what I do is really, um, is really to be a, a reader's reader or a preacher's preacher or, a, you know, um, and then as far as the public is concerned, uh, I tell stories and, uh, and that's, that's who I am, what I love and how I reach the most amount of people, um, no matter where it is, what it is that I'm doing. So it, it from, you know, for, for, for a lot of the uh, Babas, Babalaos and the community of these fathers listening, you're, it sounds like really the, the way you've chosen to, to walk your path and your mission is where Ifa is one of your pillars, but you, you did not allow yourself or do you not stay within those confines of that, solely that construct. But it seems like you've, you've taken knowledge from other systems in order to be able to show and to discuss and to have that ability to relate the commonalities and the the universal universal truths as opposed yeah. to something being strictly within one uh, yeah. you know thought system or, or belief system but showing the, the common common points so that it brings about learning discussion is that a, a proper assessment I, I think that like as a union I'm always looking for a better template you know a better way of viewing the world and since ancestrally um, that that I am uh, I am related to the slaves of Ghana uh, of the prison of Ghana um, that the worldview of my ancestors suits me better. It's the pillar that I can see best through, and so I think that that my path has been a refinement to something that is much more ancestral, uh, but at the same time much more universal. I find that the the more I understand. Um, Oduifa from a historical standpoint and from how it, how, it, um, how it came into being, what it was before slavery and what it became after slavery, um, that all of those things inform my own life story and my own ancestry. And so divination and ancestry is the basis of what I do. And so... Um, so it's not just one of the pillars, it's sort of the pillars that I see other pillars through. Um, and um, it's the distillation and the thing that feels most authentic or most me to me. No, and okay. I think it's, it's important for people like uh, hearing, I mean, um, you know, depending on the lineage, depending on uh, how a person was trained, what particular uh, family they belong to and so forth, Ifa, depending on the country, the ethnic group, the uh, the culture that it that it basically found a home in, you will find very different ad adoptions of the system of Ifa from a divination, from a ritualistic and and healing, even medical medicine standpoint. Yes, uh, and, and there's not there's not in other words there's no, not just one flavor of Ifa. I mean yeah. that's why in, in terms of you know Ifa Afa Fa. Uh, all the all the different modalities, um, and and in many other modalities, they incorporate, you know, other elements. Uh, in yes. Togo, it's very common to incorporate elements of Kabbalah, for instance, in yes. in Ifari or astrology. Uh, yes. In Benin, astrology in the, in the Fagbasa is very common. Interpretation yes. of planetary movements and really an emphasis on planetary movement, even for deciding when to do ceremonies, is very common. So yeah. I think it's important because 
you know, in in the world, everybody there's in the last, as you know, about that, in the last you know ten years, there's been you know different attempts to try to you know almost uh, dogmatize or uh, uh, you know get all the belief of Ifa under one banner, one modality. Yeah. And reality, it, it it doesn't Ifa in its purest sense doesn't lend itself to that sort of monolithic. Uh, view or uh, you know cosmovision view. Yeah, I think that both uh, Vodou and and um, and Ifa thinking is a it it, it is um, orally transmitted, um, and it's it's also um, so individualistic. In other words, Christian um, ideas of religion don't fit in the millions and millions of people who. Are divine to each have their own personal religion. In other words, you can belong to a family, but your orisha is so different than everybody in your family that your practice is your own religion. And so it's so individualistic, it does not lend itself to dogmatism. Um, and it also um, very much lends, it, lends itself to cultures. And so my own practices come from three places, Ili Ife, um, where the Apega family uh, has their method of practicing what we think of as Ifa. Um, and so their, their ideas of initiation and divination, um, which is Ikofa, is what, uh, how I was initiated. But also as Noluo, my, um, my practices come from Iwo. So Iwo is a place in west of the Yoruba people. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Oluos and the idea of how apprenticeships and teachings come. And that's because my primary teacher came from that area, um, even though he is Nigerian, and that his particular branch of what he taught, the divination that he taught, was specifically around slavery. And so the third center of my belief systems are the prisons of Ghana, particularly Bain, where my own ancestors come from. And so my interest, my Ita interest in slavery um, matches Kate's because of our ancestry. Um, what the blue bead is, is also called a Dutch bead. Uh, and so I am part Dutch. Uh, and so I have, I have that karma as well. Um, and, um, and so part of the stories and the things that we do and tell come from our ancestry, just like her book. So I'm working on a book right now that's the prequel to our book. And then much of what we learned writing the book has opened a whole other area of divination. Um, and we're going to go into the relationship of Isis to Ashra, to Astarte, to Isata, to Parisiae, to the Our Lady of Notre Dame, to the Black Madonnas, and how they're not just similar to each other, but how they're all the same. So from an African mm -hmm. perspective, we have that thing. So um, this Yamaya might be like that Oshun or, you know, and so yeah. the idea of diaspora is like the idea of evolution. You know, it's, it's like we need to adapt to our situations, to the different ancestors we have in different places, and to the different times, to the different problems that we have. So traditional Ifa from 500 years ago was not really a good answer 
to to fight slavery because the Yoruba were the slavers. And so what happened was was that like the 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 um the Vodun who were the slaves, their ideas became much more prevalent. So um so like Bara um Eshu um is not a traditional Yoruba figure, but was adapted because of how important his archetype and his idea became to the Yoruba, who themselves became slaves. And so so in many, many different ways, um, the changes and everything um, and all the differences that we have are simply because we all honor and venerate our particular paths, where we choose to be born, what, you know, what uh, our actual ancestors are, and what actually works where we are. Um, and so I think that there is a good reason to honor and venerate every single version. And uh, some will combine and some won't combine and some will change. And I think that's going to continue to go on. But as the world gets bigger, the world gets smaller. And so, you know, as I look at all of you, we may all have different paths, but really our destinations are very similar. Um, our, our, our wishes and our needs for our children for what's happening to women today, what's happening to people of color, mm -hmm. to, all of those things that think of that other people think of as political, mm -hmm. to me, they're spiritual and ancestral, and so, um, so um, you know, I think like if if you have a, a an Ifa background, you believe that Black Lives Matter for many many more years than than it's been in the public or the universal consciousness, um, because that is such a central part of what and how that thought form survived through 500 years of slavery, as well as um, oligarchy and corporate oppression and, um, and simple translation of language. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no thing that we can put on the value of, of, um, mm -hmm. of our having lost a language or languages mm -hmm. or, and having gained languages because there are distinct advantages to us being able to speak English to each other right now that has its own mm -hmm. history, um, not just in Christianity, but also in Greco-Roman and Hellenistic thought. You know, I think what Baba John Jerome was talking about with Kabbalah is really, really important. It is the linking point between all of the cultures of the North and the South of, of Africa, mm -hmm. Europe, mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. of the, the slavery and the, the, the the tragedy of, of what happened to um, to the Hebrew people. So I think that that mm -hmm. those things all sort of intertwine together, and uh, and we as a people, not just linguistically, but also in terms of our thought, all intertwine together. Mm -hmm. well, you you mentioned something about legba uh, again, that, which which there are as I say, like in everything in this in the, our belief system or anything in human affairs. There are always yeah. things that you know spark debate and uh, sometimes <laughs> yeah. tribal tribal wars, yeah. uh, because as you know, for for many, you know the the whether Eshu had, mm. was was taken or mm -hmm. was brought from the from the Fun and from the Ewe people, yeah. uh, and from the Vodou cosmology or the Fa cosmology, yeah. and adopted and changed to Eshu. Yeah. Legba from uh, Legba, 
yeah. in the Vodun is something which if we had we would have from Abome, Alata, we would have we would be having you know throwing uh, fire yeah. and brimstone back and forth. So I I, I like to teach it through the um, the evolution of song, you know, because I think of I think of um, recombinant DNA of of the archetype uh, that to me all of the different versions and everything have have their own purpose and their own um, authenticity. Um, and so when I teach, I usually teach it through a particular song. And, um, and so uh, I, 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 I almost always begin uh, ritual with, um, with the Iwe, the, the griot song, uh, which is a lament uh, to Elegbara. But then I show how it um, become how the song survives and comes to Cuba, and then to the Americas, and then to even into bluegrass. So, um, so even though our ideas and our names and everything changes, the underlying energy of the trickster, the messenger, um, the 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 powerful one, and the one who helps us, um, whether the we spiritual call archetype, yeah, the, the spiritual really the spiritual archetype, archetype. yeah. Um, and so, and, and that's important to me simply because like Kate and I come from different ideas and paths and everything. And so while um, we both may be called which um, that uh, we're getting a little bit of feedback. Uh, I think that when the microphone is this. That's better. Teresa, it's your fan. It's uh, your fan, Teresa. Yeah, so, I, I muted you. I yeah. you. So, so I think that like when Kate and I work together, I think that very often we work with the idea of archetypes. And so mm -hmm. those mysterious energies in the rooms um, that she talked about and the, the, the ancient goddesses that have no name and no face and no everything, mm -hmm. like, from my, you know, when the room fills up, the name that I use is the Iami, you know, and so, uh, and so that is that's my basis of understanding, and what I feel, you know, when there is something that is more ancient than religion, more ancient than Orisha, more ancient than Loa, more ancient than Igungun, um, that those ancestors, the ones that don't care why Johnny doesn't love me. Um, that they are here to protect the next seven generations, that their overarching presence uh, prophetically comes back only at times when we are in danger of becoming extinct. And so as a scientist, my frame of reference uh, is as a paleontologist and an archeologist. Um, and so extinction events are really important to me as a spiritual person, um, prophecy. Uh, different cultures, prophecies, the idea of what the seven sisters means, for instance, in every ancient indigenous culture, uh, whether it be the Yoruba or the Celts or the Mayan or the Native Americans, those stories all have the same idea and flavor. Um, and they also all point to specific times when we're about to F up our own existence. And they very, 
very specific. Um, so my very first teacher, Grandpa George, taught me the story of the Star Maiden and the prophecy of the 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 Anunnaki, the Odawa end of times. And so in that particular story, they say the same thing that the Yoruba say. They say the same thing that the Maya say. They say the same thing that the the ancient Celt say. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so all of the prophecies of these different astronomical people, the, the people of the Pleiades, and all of the prophecies of, for instance, the Dogon, the people of the belt of Orion, um, that they all, all of these people all are recognized uh, even on the cave paintings of 50 to 100,000 years ago. You see the same three constellations depicted over and over and over again. And so um, I'm interested in the archetypal myths of all people who are, are part of that. Um, whether they call it astronomy, astrology, uh, stargazing, history, um, by far the Dogon are the most fascinating people on the planet mm -hmm. in terms of what they still hold and believe. And there's no explanation of who they are and what they do. So I do think, and I'm really fascinated to talk about, you know, how all of our different pieces are related and things. But mm -hmm. I also I'm very, very much more interested in, in a story sense and in a song sense, um, how things, how energies are so pervasive that no matter what we as humans put on it, whether it's Christianity or our mm -hmm. own problems or whatever, that really underneath it, that we are archetypally human and the same um, and that we come from a source. And to mm -hmm. me, that source is Africa. So. Uh, so I'm moving closer to source as much as I can, at the same time becoming way more heretical than I ever thought I would be. And, uh, you know, as a science, I, I, I have a tendency to understand how things change, but, um, but I, I tend to, to, to believe in the system. Uh, and I think that politically, spiritually, uh, musically, uh, all sorts of ways, uh, I think the the EME are the time of heresy. You know? Ted, Ted, let's just let's just face it. You're you're a rebel. Uh, <laughs> without a cause. A rebel. Uh, no, he's a rebel. He's a rebel storyteller and integrates yeah. everything yeah. with this fine needle and thread through all yeah. of it. Yeah. That's how I look at it. Now, I wanted to ask you. It's interesting um, when you do ritual. Um, in the sense of, I think, um, as Beth would say, when, uh, when Utu and brought forth Conjuration Camp here in Canada, yeah. you had opened up the ceremony. So you do an actual sort of festival type of ceremony. Is this where you would bring your song, like you're singing into, into yeah. the beginning of, a, of a, a ritual or the opening of the ceremony? Yeah. Can you uh, just give me a little bit of background? In, um, in Utu's tradition, in my tradition, um, uh, so he is a, a more of a New Orleans voodoo practitioner, um, and I am much more of a voodoo, uh, a Haitian. Um, but we both believe in order of service. That's our, our recovering Christian problem, um, is that, that there is a way uh, that energy moves. And so I would typically open up 
with um, with a calling in, um, and it's the song of Elegbara. Um, and in the same way that Papa Legba songs or Eshu songs are, are very often the beginning of all ceremony starts with that energy and archetype. And it's basically sets the stage and says, this is the message. I am the messenger, don't shoot me. Um, and then um, typically when I'm working in public, what I do is I take that song and relate it to the people who are there. So like at Conjuration Camp, I would sing, Elegbara kokoe, elegbara kokoe, except much, much louder. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I would turn around to the audience because I sing this at the crossroads. I would turn to the audience and I would sing, Elegua marchenu, mabote. So that's a Cabildo song from Cuba. Um, but again, it's the same song. So now we're singing to Elegua instead of Elegbara, same tune. And then I take them to New Orleans and I sing, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. So now we're in America, right? In North America, we're in New Orleans. And so we're singing the lament. We're singing gospel. We're singing the Christianization and the Englishization uh, of what comes from the French Cabildo um, Haitians. And then, um, and then if I'm in a different setting, I may even take it to a bluegrass uh, feeling. Oh. And so, so if you think the lament is only a blues thing or a black thing, then you will, you'll hear, that's a 500-year-old song, but it's also, um, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger gathering through this world of woe where there's no sickness, no toil, no danger to that bright land to which I go. So all four of those songs have the same tune. And so the of the lament and the hopefulness of the way it ends is my order of service. And so I always have after that, depending on what we're doing. So um, so like with Utu, very often we're doing underground railroad work. And so at right. that point, we're elevating a certain deity, a certain archetype, a certain happening, or, um, or working with Harriet Tubman or working with um, the other day, I was working Elijah with uh, Elijah McCoy, who is an Underground Railroad story, but also um, a, a slave that descended from the Hatfields and the McCoys. And so that's a good story about liquor as well. And so part of what I'm doing is I'm using African roots and showing how it pervades and syncretizes and mixes and also belongs to all kinds of different ideas, musically, spiritually, um, mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. Christian church, like for instance, within the BME, AME, Baptist churches, the pervasiveness of African ritual still is hidden underneath almost everything. Anabaptists, I would add them to, uh, mm -hmm. is, is all still there. 
you know. So no matter what we call it, the spirit of the thing still exists, even with people right. who right. think of themselves as devout Christians. Um, just like you will find torrid, you know, torrents of paganism in Catholic mass, you know, um, and in the things that they do, um, is that they too, underneath what they do, honored their ancestors and honor their DNA memory of how to do things and how to be. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes with the music, sometimes with the rhythm, sometimes with their words, you know, like what's hidden in Latin. Um, mm -hmm. And very often, like in Judaism and in Catholicism, um, in the sacred geometry of simply how they sit and where they walk and mm -hmm. what Sephirot means and what Kabbalah teaches us simply by how we walk through a space in much the same way a witch will walk within a circle, you know? Um, and so there is something human in the DNA and the geometry and the singing and the stories that we all hold that transcends our differences. Absolutely. Um, so um, Beth, you had some questions of Baba Ted in regards to um, more than just spirituality in regards to uh, what you, Baba Ted, feel very strongly about, and we touched upon lightly with regards to slavery. Right. So did you want to? Yeah, if you could, I was wondering if for the listeners, if you could expand a little bit about uh, your personal sort of familial connection with, you, you touched on it briefly there, but I was so yeah. moved by what I know uh, is the story. I wonder if you could expand on it. So Kate and I met um, and uh, immediately understood that her basic mission um, uh, had to do with what she believed was happening in the same way um, that 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 uh, unknown energy fills the room, you know, uh, it was filling her life and it was filling my life in a different way. And so um, so part of my um, ordination, my initiation is, um, is that ancestrally, um, my ancestors come from the, the slave uh, prisons of Ghana. And so as a, as a witch uh, in the Yoruba tradition, um, my veneration is towards my ancestors um, who have the history of slavery but that goes all the way to now. Um, my grandmother on my father's side was, uh, was a chattel slave and she was sold to my grandfather um, and, <clears throat> and escaped several times um, and was brought back and whipped and, uh, and uh, was, was even um, whipped for bearing a daughter first. Um, and so on my... Um, on my other part of my family's side, my mother, um, that she was sold as a slave. Um, as a second daughter in Indonesia, you could be sold as long as you had a third daughter. So you had a first daughter to marry and a third daughter and a last daughter to, um, to take care of you in your old age. And the middle daughter was expendable. And so my um, mom was born blonde. And so we're part Dutch. Um, but some aberrant gene came in, and um, and so while my grandfather is considered dark Dutch, which means that we're actually gypsy, 
uh, where Gitan, uh, Roma, um, the, that there's blonde in her. And so she was born very blonde. Um, and so they couldn't, during the revolution, walk around with her because being a mixed blood, um, they could instantly kill you for having mixed blood. And so it was like the lowest uh, caste below leopards, lepers and, and orangutans, below monkeys even. Um, and so she was- And this so, was in Indo Indonesia, right? In Indonesia, yes. And so when you hear orangutan is orangutan, that means man of the woods. And that's the Hindu caste system. Below an orangutan is an orangitan, and an orangitan is a black person. Below a black person is orang manis, and that is a mixed blood. If you are a mixed blood, you are only, the only thing lower than you are untouchables, are, uh, wow. are, are the lepers and, uh, and the, the plague people. And so, um, so part of my own ancestral mission uh, in terms of stories is to talk about slavery, but part of my um, current, you know, my life, as well as what Kate talks about, is modern-day slavery. So chattel slavery, there are over 50 million slaves in the world today. And so the blue bead represents um, what the price was of buying a slave um, 400 years ago um, by my wow. Dutch ancestors. And so, mm -hmm. um, and so what has happened is, is that the worth of a blue bead today, all right, mm -hmm. so one of these beads is, it gives you the ability to buy a hundred slaves in India. So you could sell an actual slave bead, a trade bead from Africa and buy a hundred slaves in India with it. And they actually still use the blue beads to buy slaves and mass. Really? Yeah. And so in, the in Indonesia or in India? In, in India. And so, so slavery happens in Indonesia, it happens in Pakistan, um, but it also happens in the Slavic nations. And so the, the Gypsy, the Gitan, the Romani, the Roma people, um, the travelers, uh, you know, all of those people are considered to be um, sellable. And so the third, um, the third largest populations of modern slaves are in the Slavic nations and in Europe. And so um, more um, Gypsy, Romani, Roma, Sinti, uh, travelers, wheelers, uh, people who come from Pakistan and India originally that we call gypsies, uh, that they are the third most um, populous, I almost said popular, populous slaves um, in existence today. And so those three populations are, are very, um, close to me in terms of my own ancestry and as well as um, as what affects us today, you know. And mm -hmm. so very close to that is within the story of slavery, like chattel slavery, um, is the story of sexual slavery. And so whether you are a plantation... Prevalent these days yeah. with a lot of young women disappearing, etc. Yep. And so you see this in the native populations here, um, and you also see that um, that on a very personal level, that slavery is not um, 
is not something that is so distant. If you look at in North America, the number of people who are married to people who actually own them, who actually bought them with their wealth, um, uh, you know, that own them because they, they cannot escape their abusive situations. They are owned by the men that they married. And so this is also part of this idea of, of slavery. And so there are many, many, many forms of it. And, um, and so Kate and I um, use our stories and our time and our metaphors um, and our own personal stories to talk about, and to, to raise awareness for, for what um, mostly women and children are going through now, but even men. Um, and also to say that it, this is not ancient history. This is not a story. This is not mythological that the it's number of chattel slaves today, story. Oh, it, it outnumbers all of the chattel slaves sold through 400 years of Middle Passage. And so 50 million slaves is much more than, than African slavery. Um, and uh, that doesn't go into the slavery of all time. But for all of us who don't understand the PTSD of our culture with African slavery, we're experiencing it today. You know, when we look at how the descendants of those slaves are treated, and even more historically, what Kate talks about, how women have been treated historically. And so the story of being labeled a witch is the story of being labeled a woman. And the story of losing your, your, um, your sustainability, your craft, um, your ability to make cures, and to have it being turned into medicine and into apothecary and into mm -hmm. religion and into government and, and losing your position in society is what happened in the Slavic nations. The word slave comes from what happened to the Slavic people, to women. Um, by the Sorry, I will correct you there. Yeah. That is incorrect because the word slave actually mm -hmm. in Polish is słowo, which means yes. people of the word. It has nothing to do with that. And I know where your source is coming from. An, an American, um, I believe he wrote a paper on that and that is incorrect. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Baba Ted, that so is not you correct. Have, you have to go, you have to go translate the word slave to Slavic, okay? Yeah. Just for um, the record. Sure. Because the the there is a there is a metaphor within the people of the word, and not just for the Polish, but also for the Jewish people, and also for the for the you know what we call the gypsies at that time. But I suppose that's a whole different show. That's a whole different discussion. <laughs> when the when the book comes out, um, I would <laughs> love to have that discussion because there's a there's a distinct relationship between why those words were used that way. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna use the word pun. Um, but I will use the word overlay um, and, uh, and, and a very uh, a distinct and pointed reason for, for that ethnic slur to occur, uh, especially to the Polish people. And that, that figures into our alewives story too, because the Polish people are so, so important in the development of, of ale um, and beer and what happened to, the, to them as witches. Um, that also... Um, delves into the word again it's a fascinating story um, just just to let you know the word swava is spelt s yeah. l it looks mm -hmm. like the letter l but it's yes. actually a cross yes and then a 
A-W, okay? So it actually yeah. means word. There's no reference to it being anywhere linked to the word slave. That is a correlation that has been made between, uh, like I said, someone who was trying to put a paper together and uh, it has been disproven actually. But anyway, I'm just gonna leave it there because I know that the word slave does not translate into English or from Polish, the word slave is actually swovel, okay? So, so if you were to phonetically spell it, it would be S-W-O-W-O, swovo, or V-O, right? So you can't translate the word slave from Slavic. Anyway, I'm just going to speak My point, though, uh, and my overall point, though, is, is that before there were black slaves, there were slaves in Europe. And, and I think that the, the, the imposition of the Pope to ban... Um, the use of what he considered to be um, white people or Judeo uh, Christian people uh, ended that that usage in Europe, and so in the 1400s they started to go looking for other people. Indonesians were also first considered as slaves. We make terrible slaves. Um, <laughs> we're essentially lazy, and um, and we believe in reincarnation. So go ahead and kill us. Uh, <laughs> And so, um, I have come back bigger and better and stronger. You know, I, I mean, I, I kid about that. But when um, when New New York became New Amsterdam, they brought Indonesian slaves, and they all committed suicide on the boats um, because they knew they were going to Manhattan, um, and they were leaving paradise and going to New York. Uh, and then, um, and then my own ancestors were brought from Africa to Indonesia to replace Indonesian slaves in the cotton fields. And so um, Indonesian I cotton. Just wanted to, sorry, I'm just going to read what Ayanifa Ifakami had written there. There was slavery in Ireland also, white yeah. cargo. In Absolutely yes. true. Yeah. Maybe not. And I think that's another controversial story. Exactly. But I can I can point to because I'm a drummer I can point point to sp specific rhythms that come from Ireland that have found their way into Jamaica and Haiti, and so you know there's it's it's, it's no accident that um, that Mammon Bridget uh, is is Bridie or Breed from Ireland yeah. and that she is so so venerated within my tradition as well as if you are Polish. Um, that Our Lady of Chestakova yes. is also oh, one of the absolutely. most venerated um, aspects of, of Kine Yoruba Vodou. Um, and, and do so, you know the history of that and how oh, yeah. she came to be? <laughs> yeah. so, I do too. You know what? You know, it's great because I know you're, you're, you're probably Polish given your name. Um, <laughs> but um, when Toussaint Louverture... Um, became the first president of Haiti and the first yeah. free president in all of the Americas. Um, one of his first declarations was because the Polish mercenaries helped him and also helped him kick the French's ass in New Orleans. Um, he declared that all Polish people everywhere are officially black. And so, right on sister. Um, <laughs> well, there's actually, there is actually still a small community within yes. Haiti and they mm -hmm. have yeah. 
Slavic names. They have Polish yeah. names and, yeah. and the people are mixed. Yeah. Now, my understanding too is um, when they came to Haiti, they were actually hired as mercenaries, as yes. you said, and they turned around and they joined the Haitians because they yeah. realized and said, wait a second, we're doing this to these people because right. why? And the Haitians themselves were surprised because here, here's these hired mercenary soldiers from Poland. And what do they come with? They've got a banner of the Black Madonna. And yeah. so when they're coming into war, you know, to war with these people, they're like, uh, she's black, they're black, mm -hmm. and we're fighting them. And they went, they turned it around and they went, yeah, we're getting after you, okay? And they turned the table and, you know, they helped the Haitian revolution that way. So when I do Vive work, um, or actually with Kate, Kate actually does mm -hmm. the Vive work. I just take credit for it. <laughs> uh, she has the much more artistic hand. Um, but within the Vives that we use, um, Polish masonry forms a large part of the symbology of that, as well as mis uh, Muslim symbology. Uh, and so the, the idea of... The embroidery, when you see all the embroidery and the different, um, you know, again, the Polish, the, the symbology and the veves, very, yeah. very similar. When I first saw them, I went, wait a minute, I go, that's Polish, yes. you know, yeah. and then I'm like really looking at it. And I'm going, okay, it's Haitian, yeah. voodoo. It's very cool. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. I think that the, I just recently did uh, uh, a talk about um, about um, John Montanay, uh, Dr. John, um, the the older one, the one from the 1800s, and um, and the same thing occurs is that so much of Polish masonry and so much Masonic thought and so much Islamic thought is hidden within the the New Orleans voodoo uh, ideas and community. Uh, because they too came from Haiti, uh, and that they're they're also much much more. Um, on top of which, um, the idea of um, uh, Our Lady of Chesakova has three scars. You know, she has the scars on her face, and so to the people of the West African people, they see that as a sign of Tribal property scars. and royalty. Yeah, and so um, so Dr. John Montanay had three scars on his face. And so he was from the Bambara people. And so the Senegalese people um, had those same ritual scarrings that were thought of as aristocratic, but also as prophetic. Um, and so seeing the scars um, is, is such, such, a, uh, it's such an amazing revelation for that mm -hmm. revolution. Um, and no, it definitely was. Revolution, um, in many, many different ways and still does today. And so, um, so uh, voodoo practitioners here in our town uh, go to the Polish side of town. The west side of our town is Lithuanian and Polish. And so in St. Isidore's Catholic Cathedral, there is a statue um, of Our Lady of Shostakova because the Polish people there. But you will often find um, Vodosante Ebos and, and, um, <laughs> and offerings uh, given to her. And so the black community right now, you know, while this whole Black Lives Matter thing is happening, the Catholic priests don't understand why they're all going to the Polish church and leaving Black Lives Matter stickers and, and all kinds of, you know, uh, 
things. Um, there's a reliquary underneath that was stolen from Haiti, we believe. Um, and so we think uh, some of Our Lady's um, relics are hidden in the altar um, of the church here in town or stolen wow. from Haiti uh, in the 1960s. Um, wow. That's interesting. That's very well, yeah, interesting. Uh, thank you to the Ianifa for, for bringing up the, the idea of the Irish as well. Um, mm -hmm. and a lot of people, you know, wonder why an Indonesian should be an African priest and they, they don't understand that there were also African slavery in Indonesia as well, um, mm -hmm. as well as what, you know, the other things that they go through. But I think that, that aside from the historical and sort of esoteric ideas that we all uh, teach and, and hear and talk about, which is fascinating, mm -hmm. I think that we always are having to bring it to our own lives, our own mm -hmm. slavery, our own oppressions, our Making own- Making it personal. Yeah, I think that you know. Even now, I I spend a lot of time talking about the plague gods, uh, and talking about um, how um, you know if you are if you are. Uh, um, Tell us about those a little bit. Yes, I, I saw yeah. that you were talking about the plague. I, I think plague, that uh, I want to say dogs broad, because I read the book, yeah, but plague dogs. Plague yeah. dogs. I also <laughs> talk about the plague dogs. Um, I'll use I'll use one example. Okay, basically a plague god is anyone you go to when the plagues happen. So, right. if you imagine that a plague was not a bacterial or a viral thing, all right. So when the smallpox came, the people died. When the people died, business ceased. When business ceased, the crops dried up. When the crops dried up, the people starved. When people starved. The fields went to hay and the locusts came. So the word plague is much more like a biblical plague. There were mm -hmm. 10 bad things that came one after another, you know. Mm -hmm. And so not only did people get boils, but their children died. The sea turned to red, the, you know. Mm -hmm. And so in our history, those things happened over and over and over again. So a plague god is a god who gains prominence during that time. And not necessarily a god. Uh, a deity, a lua. Oh yeah, Baba Luaye was a totally minor figure in the Orisha world in Africa. But when the smallpox came and the the idea of who he was came into Cuba and Haiti and Hispaniola, the, the Dominican Republic, Baba Luaye is the most revered of all of the African Orishas um, in Cuba. You know, and so that's that's he's a plague god. From him comes Obaluaye, and from him comes Papa Sobo. And so the Haitians know Papa Sobo. And so Papa Sobo is sometimes conflated with John the Baptist. Um, but he's also okay. um he's also syncretized in another way. And so um so as a plague god, he's also Papa Roach. And so if you know who St. Roach is, yes. so, so St. Roach, you see pictures of St. Roach and he's showing or us Saint some Rock. leg. Yeah, you know, and so he's, uh, he's showing us some leg and he's got a boil on his leg and there are yes. usually dogs around him. So the plague dogs are the it's dogs that fed Papa Roach. And so he's very often conflated with Ogun and dogs. And so yeah. 
Um, and so, and, and in the ha in the Haitian, in in in, in fact, in, in Guinea Yoruba, almost everybody is Ogun. You know, it's like um, even Chango is Ogun. You know, and so in that way of thinking, the plague gods, uh, when you when you are venerating Papa Sobo because you have the coronavirus, um, mm -hmm. there's a, a historical antecedent to that, but also there's an African story behind that. So Papa Sobo is the word Osogbo. And so in African and also in, in Cuban, in, in, the, in the diaspora beliefs, Ire and Osogbo are two ideas. Um, and so Papa Sobo represents what is sort of generally thought of as misfortune or the plagues, you know? But mm -hmm. um, Papa mm -hmm. Sobo also represents Ire. He also represents the ability to prosper and the ability to change and the and the ability to come out of these plagues and um and so fertility like baby booms that come out of quarantine so papa sobo oh. he's in charge of that too you know um, and um and also um that ire and sobo and osogbo are closely related to so i'm a priest of of oshunilo day and my main Oshun temple is in Osogbo, Nigeria. Right. It refers to a specific Oduan story and things, but a lot of what I teach right now is out of really horrible bad things that we're going through right now. Not just the disease, but mm -hmm. racial unrest and political corruption and, right. and right. different oligarchy and all kinds of things where we are all... Um, uh, we are all in misfortune. That at mm -hmm. the same time, we are also experiencing ire, uh, fortune. And so mm -hmm. Oshun also shines upon us at this time where, like for Kate and I, we have the ability to spend all our time together now. We have our children in our house all the time. We are, um, we are healthy, we are well-fed, and we are planning on what happens next, you know. And I think that the the idea of like what I talked about in the lament is that there's always an end to the lament that is different than the blues. So like the blues is bad shit happens in 12 bars over and over and over and over again, right? A lament is different. At the end of the lament is, is <clears throat> um, like in the first part, and I sing, I sing the exact same words at the end. But there, I'm saying that there is a bend in the road. So ko means the bend in the road. It does not mean the crossroads. It means I make a change. And it means that the messenger of hope and the messenger of change is here, as well as the bringer of bad news. So there's two energies, ire and are hidden in that song. So, yeah, and, it's, and it continues. So when you hear... Um, you know, when you hear, like, in bluegrass, you hear, uh, I I'm going home. You know, I'm crossing Jordan. I'm going home. That's the other side of it. So the worst thing that can happen to me is I go to Arun. I go to heaven. The best thing that can happen to me is I stay here and I become part of, of earth. And so I, I, mm -hmm. I venerate Babalu Aye, who is the, ba the Babalao of Aie here on earth. He is the father of the mysteries here on earth. So if I'm staying on earth, and if I want to stay on earth, I venerate him. But if I die, 
there, this is a no-lose situation, you know? And so the, the sort of pessimism that we have as recovering Christians or recovering Hellenists or Greco-Romans is this idea of punishment and sin and whatever. And that's not traditional for African thought. African thought has to do with divination, destiny, and choice, you know? And so bad shit happens, but it's what I choose to do with it. It's what is divined for me as how best to come out of it, you know? And so um, I don't consciously try to divine a word of hope at the end. I just think mm -hmm. it's natural in what we're doing that we do have some sort of a choice here. We just don't know it right now. I think we're too thick in the middle of things, but I mm -hmm. see this as a prophetic time. And I think that the plague gods are so, mm -hmm. so important right now. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, how is it that you divine? Um, you said you divine for yourself. So can you just tell me what, what do you use to divine? I am the most difficult client um, of all of the people that I divine for. Um, and partially because I think I know everything. And so, um, so when I divine for myself, I use a system that doesn't allow for interpretation. Okay, so typically when I work with other people, I work with Shulton and Maya and Tarot. I work with um, um, I, I work with um, shells uh, if they're African um, traditional um, variants. Um, mm -hmm. But when I work with myself, um, I typically I typically do one of two things. I ask Kate. She's much more, um, uh, much more um, conversant at this than I am, and so um, she is the objective. <laughs> but I think that the second part is like if she's not there, um, um, I, I very often turn to a form of bibliomancy. I take, um, huh? I take right. a, uh, I take a, um, uh, a book of Ifa uh, or Odu verses and I will randomly open it, or I will do a cast um, to come up with the binary number and go to a specific book. And then I go to the African translation, uh, what they call the, the left-hand side. So I find like books by Bascom and Herskovitz are very good for that. Um, and, and so what I do is, is that I then read those, but in a very specific way, okay? So when I read Odoo, it has a head, it has a heart, it has a stomach, it has a, 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 an iwa, um, and it has legs. And so, um, so um, I read the destiny part of it in the names of the Orisha. I read the, the message in the words, what it's called the throat, and then I read the heart of it. So very often, like if you're reading a translation, it says, Ifa says. When you get to the part that says Ifa says, that's the heart of the matter. And so I read that literally. And then when we get to the idea of the stomach, it's what do I feed my situation? Is there an Ebo? Is there an Mu? Is an Etutu? Is there, um, what is the offering that has to be made? What's the action or the, or the energy? And so I view my own divination for myself very strictly in those in those orders. Right? How does this apply to my ita? What is being said and how do I understand it? Are they the same or are they different? 
I'm usually the wrong one. I'm hearing it wrong. I'm not listening to what it's saying. Then I listen to the heart of the story. And underneath the story, there is something that is um, like in the song. There is something enduring and endearing under it that speaks to your heart. And so your character is influenced by the innate goodness of the story. And then I go to the stomach. And so in, in my own particular belief, I believe that, that um, character and destiny are the only two things that I attend to. That's my job. And so trying to make me follow the Odu, the Ifa, uh, and both aspects of that is what I do. It's way easier to just go to Kate. Um, is that she, is, um, she is innately a heart person and she innately speaks from that place. And so I'm innately a head person. Um, and so I can, I can rationalize and justify anything. So, uh, so she keeps me on the straight and narrow and um, is a much, much more um, trusted advisor. And very often I can just talk to her uh, and mm -hmm. she sort of is channeling this stuff all the time um, and sometimes mm -hmm. says stuff out loud that I have no idea what it means or where it's coming from. Um, and then um, then we suddenly have to talk about that. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of like when people say, did I say that out loud? Um, she says stuff out loud all the time. You know? Can I ask you to... Um kind of a rhetorical question from where I'm coming from, but how did you meet? And because there are very, very few people that I know that have a relationship quite like yours and quite as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? As complementary uh, to one another in terms of your strengths as you have. And I know a little bit about this, but again, I'm, <laughs> I, you might fill in the rest of the book. Well, my answer is, please buy the book. No, um, <laughs> I think that Kate probably needs to answer that. Yeah. Because um, she's more honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, many years ago, I owned a metaphysical shop in town. And there was a morning that I had, I would drop off my kids to school and then I would, would drive in and open up. And I usually had some time in the morning to take care of things in the store and not, you know, um, not open up right away. But that morning, for some reason, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I'll just unlock the door, throw the open sign up and, and uh, just go about my business. And he, I noticed that there was a car that stopped outside of the, the windows and there's a gentleman got out of the car and he had his back to the store and was kind of looking around and then turned around and looked up at the store and walked in. And this was like, you know, it's supposed to open around 10 in the morning. And I think this was around 830 or so. And normally I wouldn't be open. Mm -hmm. So he came in and, and we started talking and he was actually looking for a place. He had just come back into town from Dakota, from the Dakotas, and um, was looking to do some readings or do something to, you know, get reestablished. He had lived here before, but it had been many, many years, and had heard about a new store where he might be able to do some readings. And turns mm -hmm. out he was dropped off right in front of the store he was looking for, which was mine. And um, 
so he came in and that's actually how we met and at that time uh, and started talking and became friends and and I was married at, at that point in time um, barely but I was <laughs> and uh, so you know we well we became friends and um, had a lot of I mean that that particular shop though it didn't last it definitely served its purpose because not only did I meet him through there, but mm -hmm. so many really, really, really amazing people who are my friends to this day who helped me through some times that were were mm -hmm. really, really rough. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're still my friends. They're, we're still connected. And nice. so, you know, that was that's kind of the, the short version. And yeah, we, we met at that point in time and he's, he just <laughs> He just kept coming by, he kept sticking around. He wore me down. Like, All right. so. Yeah, the fact that you she couldn't get rid of him. <laughs> she put, she cast a spell in a cauldron in her shop, and it kept coming back. You know, in a weird way, yeah, because the person I so so different than the person I was with at that time, and it, it was it was really troublesome to try to. Um, mm -hmm. try to fit that life and what was expected of me. Mm -hmm. I just didn't do it. I was becoming physically sick. It was, it was really rough. So, you know, there were, there were many times I would just pray, like I wanted to, you know, meet someone. I wasn't thinking necessarily romantic relationship, but at that point, like just kind of like anybody who would not think I was, you know, like let me be able to talk to you. Like, yeah, I hear voices, but I'm not crazy. I swear to God, you know, it's like I'm just, you know, be able to have someone to relate to in that yeah. way. What is. I, I, I think that that comment is very important. I think for, for people uh, listening and people who have uh, an intuitive gift or given mm -hmm. a, uh, a gift in terms of, and they sometimes look at it as a curse because their families, mm -hmm. their immediate families, siblings, community, friends, yep. you know, uh, can be very harsh and can be very uh, abusive uh, and, and can, you know, I think it's very important for anybody. One of the reasons, I mean, we, we did this show was to let people know that irregardless of your modality or how you practice whatever belief system you practice, whether Absolutely. you do it one way or whether you do it the other, there is no monopoly again on on the ability to communicate with spirit. Uh, mm -hmm. It can come in different shapes, forms, directions, archetypes, you know, uh, sources. But at the end of the day, if you have a gift, it's very hard and can be very damaging to the individual, to the family, and to the, and to everybody else to have you know a closed uh, mind. Uh, towards it and, mm -hmm. and uh, an abusive mind towards it, um, almost forcing an individual to to live a secret life and almost a, a forced duality or multiple personality in order mm -hmm. to keep you know the 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 the, the spheres of their lives. Uh, so mm -hmm. at the at the end of the day, what, what we're hoping uh, when we say you know our life life is the journey our ancestors began, is that we all come with a particular mission. And we may find, as uh, Baba Ted has alluded to, uh, we may get a piece of that a mission or the, or the answers to that mission in one culture, one system, another in another. 
another through friends, another through travel. And there may be different sources that sort of help build that tapestry. But the important thing is that you, as a person who is intuitive, as a person who has a gift, a person who has a sacred mission, that you be allowed, you know, to to carry out that mission without being interfered with, uh, threatened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we talk about slavery. Uh, there's a quote from a movie which I, I really liked. Uh, has, you know, not directly with any spiritual belief system, but it was from Al Pacino and Scent of a Woman. And he says something which is, there is no prosthetic for an amputated spirit. Yeah. The worst slavery is the one where your spirit is broken, yes. where your yeah. freedom and your and your identity is is you know crushed, or 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 you know restrained, and mm -hmm. you know there is the horrors of physical slavery, but as as my mom used to say when she was alive, it is the dust of today that brings the mud of tomorrow. It may start with with a form of spiritual slavery with a sport of emotional uh, blackmail or emotional uh, uh, slavery. But eventually those modalities, those thoughts are what lead to actual physical slavery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, yeah. Somebody had a question from our audience that- uh, How can how I get can the book? Get is it out? Book? It yes. is. You can you can get it on Amazon. I know pretty easily. Uh, it's it's available. Uh, yeah. the, oh, absent, the absent alewives and, and your, alchemy. And your other books too are available on Amazon as well. That's probably the easiest. Yep, you can okay. get them right through there. Mm -hmm. Good. It's probably now, the easiest way if you were to look up um, just our names, and then it would. I think it brings up like all the titles. So there, there's, there's a, you know, some different types of things. And so if you look up like Ted's name or my name or something, it, would, it should bring up the different titles that are related Perfect. to that. I'm right. more of an acquired taste. Um, <laughs> yeah. so I, I write um, political th thrillers that are very long and have multiple characters and, um, <laughs> and are about prophecy and, uh, and about all of the things that we were just talking about. But in a thriller sense, yeah, um, they're really fun. So, yeah, yeah, people people chase each other and die, and all kinds of things happen. <laughs> so, but 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 Kate, uh, I'm I'm sort of uh, on their ticker. I'm uh, putting up a web event that you have upcoming. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? The Crowdcast IO, the story okay. of the real Sazerac with Baba Teddy. Yes. So. Um, in, in, in the real world, um, I very often go to conventions, steampunk conventions, and we talk about steampunk. And uh, but I also do a thing that um, that I typically would be doing now, and that is is that I love to use the history of alcohol to teach spirituality. And so witchcraft um, is is nice. found in American drinking, and so. Um, so um, we're crowdcasting on the Hex Education Network. Um, and so those of you who know Christian Day and his Hex Fest, um, this is yes. a virtual teaching. Um, but what I, what I do and what I will do, except in a more extended way, will really get into it in ways that I'm not really allowed to at a, um, um, 
at a, uh, a vanilla convention <laughs> and uh, is to get into um, what is the history of cocktails? What does that have to do with witchcraft? How does absinthe figure into that? Why are mm -hmm. apothecarists black uh, in New Orleans? Uh, Dr. John Montanay and, um, and Antoine Amade Peychaud. What is Peychaud's bitters? What are bitters and why is it voodoo? Who he was and what a Sazerac cocktail is. And so we're going to the story of Sazerac, the cognac, and why it was the drink of choice of the Masons, what it had to do with the Comet of 1812, and, um, and how, just like Kate's ancestors had their recipe stolen, Antoine Amade Peychaud, the first black apothecarist in New Orleans, had the Sazerac stolen from him. And I'm also going to teach you how to make it right with the real <laughs> original three ingredients and not the ones that you're told. And so we're going to talk about that, starting with absinthe. And, um, and usually while I'm doing this, I'm making 50 cocktails. And then we all drink. And I teach about the witchcraft of Encanto, of toasting, and why toasting uh, is, is a form of witchcraft, and why only cultures that have witchcraft toast. Um, and so we'll talk about that too, and we'll do an actual fire toast. Um, and so the last uh, Hex Education Network that we did here, I blew a huge eight-foot fireball in the house. Yes, in the living room. In the living room. <laughs> And all I had to do Yay. was not tell Kate I was going to do that. So, <laughs> and so I may blow a small fireball yeah. <laughs> um, making the um, making the wreck. That's um, awesome. <laughs> I, I just wanted to add, because uh, Baba Jean-Jerome um, mentioned something about your mission in life and stuff. And um, one of the things we had all talked about was the idea of what might be a quote that we all have, and, and he prompted me to think about this. And yes, so and I um, are are officially opening the Blue Bead Foundation this year, and okay. so we are are going um, to uh, through the whole process of a nonprofit, a five hundred one c three, as well as a state nonprofit. Um, but our mission is um, to teach in her name, to heal in her name and to bless in her name. And so the her, which is a capital H, um, is, um, is something that we both believe in, is that beyond all of religion and beyond all of the ideas and thoughts of, of recorded or written word or whatever, there is a her. Um, and so while we have for 5,000 years talked about him, um, the prophecies of indigenous people point to the return of something huge and nameless that has come before, but only in times when we are in danger of extinction. And so um, roughly speaking, what we are dedicated to is finding those stories, is finding those words and feelings, and in finding her in all of her guises and all of her names, whether it is through our own paths or the paths of all indigenous people, that these prophecies exist um, mm -hmm. way before mm -hmm. written words and stuff. And then mm -hmm. they are the sort of the basis of what we believe in and do, no matter what mm -hmm. story we're telling, even when we're telling a good story. Mm -hmm. 
we're talking about teaching and healing and blessing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 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 So, um, Jean Jerome, do you have any questions? Are there any questions from our audience that have tuned in that want to ask a question of uh, Baba Ted and Kate? No, I think they're they're pretty much we've we've addressed the the comments and some of the questions uh, mm -hmm. are posed. Mm -hmm. I think we're at our our typical two hour mark. So, um, is there anything else, uh, Baba Ted or Kate, that you'd like to announce or? to mm -hmm. let people know about uh, as we sort of wrap up? Well, um, you can, um, if you're interested, keeping up with us, um, I try to, we're getting things scheduled on our website right now, which is circadia.com, and that's S-U-R-C-A-D-I-A, and you can get some more information like the books that are out, um, what we're doing, okay. Um, we'll have more things up about, you know, once we're all get all of our paperwork approved and everything for the blue bead. And so I mean, that's a good place to kind of keep up or check in on once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Then like some of the social media places. Excellent. I have, it, all right. I have a personal shout out. Um, it is such a pleasure to see Beth. Yes. Um, and while she yeah, is peart, she's also pert. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I don't think that many people understand what a big deal she is in the beading community. And um, absolutely, you just Google oh African beading, and and she shows up all over your Pinterest. And and I, I think that my is the maker of my alekes, um, which I treasure. Um, and. Um, but also um, the regalia and ceremonial garb that I have. Absolutely, uh, she's the only one who understood the um, the no-headed mermaid with two tails, um, and, and that it's not from Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> political statement, uh, but uh, but um, I think that the beyond her skills um, is that uh, we think of her as the one of the inspirations of the blue bead in terms of her own personal story and her own Ita and path. Um, and so mm -hmm. she has to be on her own show one day too. Yeah. Um, and so we can get her to talk about herself. But I think that she is one of the many people as we were coming to this that inspired us and also taught us the meaning and the depth of what beads are, um, both in mm -hmm. terms of ceremony, but also in the history of mm -hmm. slavery itself. Um, and oh, so, that's um, thank you. So we really, really honor her. And, um, we are just like yeah, we love pleased you, to see her face and, um, you know. Absolutely. We even like her husband. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Weeks, I love Mr. Yeah. Weeks. I know he's out there listening. So hi, Mr. Weeks. Yeah. He <laughs> only wants to come here to play golf because we have, <laughs> Six thousand golf courses here. <laughs> oh, but he's welcome there any time, you know, yeah. as long as he drags his old lady with him. Yeah. Well, so. <laughs> well, it's it's, a, it's definitely a double joy to have met you and uh, uh, Ted, Baba Ted, and Kate. And yes. Beth, we Thank love you. Beth. We've known for many years, and now we have new friends with Baba Ted and Kate. Uh, and uh, definitely Beth. I will say, I will echo your comments, not 
not just on the beating, because I will say that for all our ceremonies of Awoifakan, uh, Ikofafun, uh, or any uh, Risha, I always go to, and even for uh, making the Eshu heads for uh, ceremonies of Isefa, I especially seek out Beth because of her spirituality, her honesty, and that Ashe that she has. And uh, she's been, uh, for all those tuning in, I think it's very important to know that when I uh, first sort of went into the social media, the Facebook, and was looking for other people that were interested and were uh, uh, either part of or working within the EFA or Risha community, Beth was one of the first uh, people I met. Uh, and she was always... I always said, if you ever wanted to know somebody in the community, ask Beth, because Beth knew everybody, <laughs> and yep, uh, yep. and 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 everybody loved Beth. And I must say, yeah. she's one of the uh, highly nicest, regarded, uh, and really most uh, wonderful uh, people I've had the privilege of working with, of uh, of uh, having as a friend. And uh, I'm Absolutely. very happy that she could join us tonight uh, as our, our co-host. And, um, you know, for everybody, that's, uh, we love you, Beth. Love you, too. Love we you love you, Beth. <laughs> You're our pal and our buddy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank so, you. And I want to say thank you to Baba Ted and Kate. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for talking to us. Your stories are incredible. I love listening to you. It, it, it was a lot of fun. And this is the whole part, the whole point of this show is to get to know my Facebook friends, Jean Jerome's <laughs> Facebook friends, and I'm sure Beth has a few that she could recommend too. Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, thank you, so thank you very much. And again, I want to thank everybody who tuned in tonight um, and stay tuned for our next episode. Do we know who we have for our next episode? No, it's going to be a mystery guest. <laughs> secret. 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 Awesome. Awesome. We, we have to start building some suspense after these things. <laughs> For sure. Everybody, For sure. a good night. Odabo. Blessings, Odabo. everybody. And, uh, good health. And uh, pursue your Stay spiritual safe. dreams. Pursue your spiritual paths. Don't be afraid. And again, the purpose of these shows is to to let people know they're not alone. That there's a there is a community Absolutely. that spans culture, uh, country, race, color, you name it. Uh, sexual orientation doesn't matter. It, mm -hmm. Wherever you are, you have a community, a spiritual community that uh, you can turn to here in uh, in Toronto and the United States, around the world. Okay, blessings. Yes. Ashe. Thank you. Ashe. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Bye. So. <laughs>